Welcome to The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and I'm so excited to have two guests with us today who've helped to make Gordon Ramsay Uncharted such a unique and wonderful series. With us is the series namesake and one of the world's most famous chefs, Gordon Ramsay, and executive producer, John Kroll. So, gentlemen, what has life been like for you in quarantine the last few months? Um, the first 10 days is like, is this really happening? And, you know, how surreal is this? But um, I think I've spent, you know, three of the most um, incredible positive months uh, of my entire life, especially um, with what's going on outside of the house. Um, but it's about family. And so that quality time is like never before. Um, and you know, from baking the most amazing sourdough bread to mm. having different menus running on a daily basis. Uh, we've got seven of us here, you know, four dogs, three cats, two tortoises, um, and then five kids and my wife and I. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty hectic, amazing um, sort of 24 hours uh, inside the Ramsey household. <laughs> I love that. Well, you thrive in chaos, so you are more than ready for this situation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Without <laughs> and, a doubt. And John, where are you and where have you been living the last two months? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm holed up at my house, uh, but uh, I got uh, back from Uncharted's last scout and immediately went into lockdown and mm. post. And so it's been about moving all the posts uh, uh, out of house and working remotely. So we went right into finishing all of the Uncharted episodes, uh, which we've just wrapped up and now it's starting to air. Oh, that's wonderful. And season two is currently airing for, for anyone who's catching up. So that is excellent news. So before we talk about Uncharted, which is an incredible achievement, I wanted to talk a little bit about some formative experiences in your backgrounds. And Gordon, it's impossible to talk about your background without talking about football which of course here we call soccer Mm. so for so forgive the forgive the term soccer for a moment (laughs) but I wanted to know um what is it about playing football that you think groomed you to become a chef what did the two have in common if anything yeah that's a good question um I think having that background uh, early on in life um with sports uh, is a big, deep connection to food and running restaurants. Restaurants depend on teamwork. They depend on strategy. They depend on fitness. They depend on you know, attitudes, professionalism. And then, as always, um, experience. So that level of teamwork um, is pivotal um, in restaurants. And I think that sporting background for me has allowed you know my career to... Uh, to last uh, way longer, you know, than I could ever expect because it's about, you know, running a marathon, not a 100-meter sprint. And, 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 you know, this industry, as you well know, chefs burn out. They don't get the right sort of support, the direction. And so if there's one thing that sporting background has given me is the stamina that has been absolutely pivotal and the longevity um, and not becoming a trend that is gone in 18 months. Um, this year... At Rush and Gordon Ramsay, we celebrate 22 years and opening up in September 1998. And we're now in our 20th year um, with our third Michelin star. I still have the same maitre d' and I'm now on my second head chef uh, in terms of the level of continuity that goes into that business. So, um, yeah, sport Mm. means teamwork. I love that. That's great. 
And John, one of your earliest uh, breakthrough documentary style projects was at the time somewhat controversial series called Amish in the City, which I actually recall watching. It was very cool. And you followed Amish teenagers as they experienced so-called modern life. And I'd love to know, what did you learn about the nuances of capturing other cultures while maintaining respect and distance, but also having a sense of wonder and curiosity and, I guess, critical thought at the same time? Well, uh, while Gordon was playing football, I was growing up on a commune without uh, television or electricity and had to learn my teamwork skills by by playing well with others in a communal environment. Hmm. And so when I met the Amish people that we were doing this show with, I connected with them on that kind of level and was able to sort of help tell their stories in a way that, that I shared a part of their point of view, hmm. even though they're... Uh, they're, they're, they were based in religion and my uh, parents were hippie homesteaders. So it was, I think it's a matter of finding the connecting points and that allows you to minimize the differences and stick to authenticity uh, with mm. their storytelling and don't try to go too far with, the, uh, uh, with, with heightening it or anything like that, which I've tried to do my entire career, including Uncharted. Gordon's the best talent in the world because you don't have, there's no script. He just does his thing and mm -hmm. it makes magic. Wow. And where was your commune growing up? Northern California. Oh, wow. So for both of you, I'd love to know what experiences did you have as young people that kickstarted your interest and love for food? What was the first thing that you ate that you thought, okay, this is more than nourishment. This is actually magic. Gordon, what was that for you? Um, I grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon, and my mum was a an amazing cook in a local restaurant called the uh, Cobweb Tea House, which doesn't sound the most appetizing <laughs> name for a restaurant. Um, so prior to soccer practice uh, games on Saturday and Sunday, I used to go into these kitchens and help my mum prep. And she'd be making things like steak kidney pudding, uh, doing the most amazing roasts. Um, she'd be baking. And so I was amazed just how multitask she was. She worked um, five days a week in this little uh, tea house. And then she had a, a job in the evening, uh, working nights as a nurse. So wow. I couldn't believe the level of stamina. But what I was fascinated by was the, the chaos. You know, when the orders came in, she used to put me in the corner, stand on an apple box um, and put me in the sink, peeling all the potatoes and carrots, you know, for the next chef coming on for the evening. So I just could not believe what she was doing. But what was exciting more than anything was the food that wasn't sold, mm. she was allowed to bring home. Mm. And so from the most amazing stews to uh, haddock, cod, uh, the way she used to make you know, the most amazing pies. So whatever wasn't sold on that shift, part of her bonus was to bring food home uh, back to the house, which she was just reheating. A, she had to get off to her second job, and B, I was there at the beginning. So I was fascinated with that prep. And that was my early insight to mm. not just the love of food, but what it did teach me was not to leave anything. And it was mm. dubbed really rude, you know, to, to, to mess with your vegetables, to start swishing things around your plate. And mum taught me early on from the age of eight or nine to become a very unfussy eater. And I think that's really important as a child. Mm. And now we know where you got your stamina. That's an incredible, amazing achievement on her part. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, amazing. And and John, how about you? What was your, obviously you grew up in a non-traditional environment, but how important was food to that community? 
Well, there was lots of lentil loaves and tofurkey and things that would make Gordon cringe. Um, but uh, but uh, every uh, every Christmas and summer, I would go spend time in Los Angeles with my grandmother, who would take pity on me and take me out to nice restaurants. And I could order anything on the menu, but appetizers were considered taking advantage. So I was encouraged to. Uh, so so I tried any number of things, and I fell in love with avocados. And to this day, I'll eat an avocado on everything. So Uncharted in some ways may seem like a departure, Gordon, from recent series, but at the same time, it's actually sort of a return to form for you to 2010 when you did Gordon's Great Escape, which sort of lay the foundation for Uncharted. And I'd love to know what inspired you to get out of that studio environment and back out into the world, and also what informed your reimagining of this format for 2020? Mm -hmm. Uh, From a chef's point of view, you know, the world's getting smaller because of the internet and social media. And so chefs are doing less traveling. And so the poignant turning point for me with Uncharted was discovering the, the roots and that culture and having that you know, attitude to really understand you know, Maori cuisine, to really understand what Indonesian you know, foundation of food is. And so... Everyone thinks you've got three Michelin stars and you run successful restaurants and you, 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 you don't have anything else to learn. It's actually quite the opposite. It's even harder for you to learn when you get to the very top with those accolades because people don't expect you to go back down to the drawing mm. board. So Uncharted for me was a way of uh, digging deep and understanding what those countries stood for. And then the sort of cross-pollination of how, how, how to evolve them and working with those young chefs in those areas was key, and, and John made a very important point that you know these young chefs. You look at Annalise, uh, and you know young chefs that are fighting to reestablish their culture. The the, the, mm. the double-edged sword for Uncharted for me was the jeopardy. I didn't want to go mm. in there as a as, as a three mission star chef thinking I know it all. So I wanted to desperately become the pupil. And everyone looks at me and says, why, why are you doing that? Why are you going back to the floor? Because deep down inside, it's where I'm happiest. Mm. Because it's not about a show. It's about the learning and bringing those little sort of nuggets of incredible insight back um, is expanding my repertoire and giving me, I think, um, you know, a, 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 an insight to, to stuff that um, I never thought I'd be in a position to continue learning. So, yeah. It's uh, it's digging deep, I think, really. And then on a personal front, I do get incredibly sort of made to feel guilty when everything's so glossy, mm-hmm. and it's a studio, and there's hair and there's makeup, and uh, and I'm 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 not condemning that. But from a chef's point of view, there's something about being at the coalface, and Uncharted allows me to almost be at the beginning of the, my career again, where I'm going on that path and I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to, you know, find all these nuggets of information to come back and dissect and respect and then to put into tuition where I can teach again. So um, it's, it's a time where I get lost and I, I, I sort of switch off and there's no communication uh, to home and it really is uh, back to the floor. Hmm. And John, how did you get attached to this project? Did you know Gordon before? 
We had never met, and uh, it's it was I got attached to this by some sort of miracle that brought me to the perfect place that I need to be right now. Uh, I got involved in the unscripted business at a time when authenticity was valued and things weren't formatted and pre-produced within an inch of their lives. And I loved that about it. I loved that the best things that could happen are the things that you that you don't plan for, that you don't expect. And I had gotten into a mode of working on shows with two and 300 person crews and you become basically a manager at that point. Mm. And this, we have a very small crew. We have the most amazing crew on Uncharted as I'm sure Gordon would agree because he gives them lots of love and praise all the time. It's such a fantastic group. It's very small. We shoot 360 degrees. Gordon doesn't get directions so much as he's given a, you know, we, we give him a little bit of information and he goes in and creates magic with them. It's really an opportunity to embrace the authenticity of those moments. And what we just try and do in advance of that is make sure that all the pieces and people are in place that, that he can create that magic. And he's just unlike any talent I've ever had the opportunity to work with and that he's able to walk into someone he's never met and turn that into a scene and help the viewer experience it through his eyes in just a really a magical way. Yeah. I think where, where the dynamic is, uh, Stacey, is that, you know, there's, there's something refreshing today with the Jeopardy. You know, John uh, does all the research and in many ways is over every little detail, but then it's, it is unscripted. And I don't wrap myself up in cotton wool in a way that I want everything laid out for me. So that Jeopardy from a chef's point of view, there's no chef in the world that would ever switch off to that because it's, it's a vulnerable position to be in. And there's something quite cool about vulnerability in terms mm. of sort of sat there naked and afraid um, and being dealt some pretty dysfunctional ingredients that you've never come across uh, before. And then using your wizardry sort of, you know, creative side to come back with something stronger, not trying to compete with what's happening locally, but just trying to sort of, I suppose, put yourself in their shoes four or five decades ago when this stuff was, you know, relevant and, 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 and was on everyone's table. And now it's no longer seen because of food trends. So um, I like that playing catch up strip with the jeopardy but also there's something quite uh remarkable about becoming vulnerable i think it's something every young chef should do today because it stops you from becoming complacent and uncharted highlights that vulnerability i think mm. it, it, and, in many ways the toughest part of the show is getting the people we interact with to understand that it's okay to criticize gordon it's okay to correct him it's okay to bust his balls at times you know and and the once people realize that's okay that's when it gets really interesting and and but some of them especially the chefs are really nervous about that until they realize no no that's our show you are the teacher he is the student so i'd actually like to play a clip from the episode you did in south africa that I feel is very emblematic of such perilous moments. She taught me how to make a lot of... Did you hear that too? That was not me. <laughs> Did you hear that? <gasps> there he is. There he is. <gasps> He's looking at me. He's actually coming over. He's looking at us. He's not around. <gasps> He's literally coming this way. Oh boy. I've never had to cancel a table in my life. <gasps> Zola, please. Is he coming for real? He's coming towards us. What do I do? First of all, Gordon, what, what did we just hear in that moment? And how scared were you? 
Yeah, this was the real deal. Yeah, we're in the middle of a uh, incredible sort of, you know, wild terrain. And, you know, hippos are somewhat dangerous animals. And so, you know, these things run underwater and charge out of, you know, this incredible lake. So, you know, my, my, my chef that I was, you know, sort of, you know, cooking alongside, she, she was not nervous at all. And so I was slightly freaked out the fact that she was so sort of relaxed and a little bit sort of, you know, jokey and jovial, <laughs> which is all fun in a normal right. kitchen. But when right. you got a, uh, a 700 pound hippo that's raring to go and agitated that you're in his back garden, not happy. So yeah, I've been in some very strange situations in my life and I've cooked in some unique corners of the world and been under immense pressure, but never quite like that because we all had to be briefed. If this thing charges, uh, you're heading up here, you're jumping into the van and uh, Zola was amazing. Uh, but she seemed to sort of, enjoy watching me sweat for both of us. I noticed that she did have a little twinkle in her eye a little bit seeing you get nervous. Yeah, and also the crew are there. You know, I'm as protective with uh, Zola as I am with the cameraman and the sound. And, you know, there was security guards there with AK-47s that were also looking to run up the hill with the Zulu chief. So, you know, I'm cooking a bloody lunch for God's sake. You know, I'm on a grill and trying to get up to speed with the braai and try to get up to speed with, you know, looking after a massive chief. And um, you've got a hippo about to charge you down. So it was my second encounter with this thing. And then even when I was sleeping at night, I used to say to John, Jesus Christ, John, you know, I woke up at half past three and the hippo's outside my door. He said, don't worry, he won't come in. I said, what do you mean he won't come in? So I stayed in that lodge. I stayed in that same room, you know, a couple of months back and I could hear him in there as well. I said, yeah, but how do you know he's not going to come in? There's a tiny window separating us, this huge thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not used to that kind of stuff. That's quite rare for a chef to be in that predicament. Yeah. And there's a lot of trust involved and a lot of uh, finger crossing, I have a feeling. He wasn't yeah. going to come in, Gordon, because he didn't have a reservation. Come on. Um, <laughs> See, there you go. Uh, no, this is the only show I've ever worked on where there's been a hippo safety briefing. And um, it, I mean, like a very, very serious real one. And we yeah. had an evacuation plan. And in fact, in the scene where the hippo charges, uh, we actually did evacuate the site. And then once it went away, we came back and finished shooting it. But it was uh, definitely an eventful uh, afternoon. <laughs> well, I'm glad wow. it worked out, but it was it was a little nerve wracking from our perspective. So I can't imagine how that felt in person. So thank you for being smart and cautious. And John, in selecting the locations for each of these episodes, to what degree are you purposely wanting to challenge Gordon in terms of his culinary comfort zone? Are you choosing places where you feel, OK, he's not as well versed in this culture or this cuisine? How does that inform your selection? Uh, my selection is informed by the fact that Gordon has told me he would like to be challenged, and so I, and <laughs> okay. so I make it my mission to do so. Uh, we don't want to go easy places. We want to make sure there's ingredients he's never worked with. That's always a primary goal of this process is to introduce him to new flavors and new sensations so that we can really get an authentic reaction for him um, reacting to something for the first time or just give him something like durian, which we know he hates, and have him have, him have to deal with that. <laughs> I exactly. love that. And for both of you, 
how much have you relied on local experts and local crew members in making sure that the series has a minimal cultural and environmental impact as much as possible? You're dealing with a lot of very spare environments, small villages, people who don't have a lot of resources. How are you making sure that you your footprint is very light when you visit these places? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, we work um, incredibly um, efficiently and we have um, no time wasters. We have endless requests for you know, producers and you know members of the team dying to get out and, and sort of become you know a, a, a part of that team. But we're not a big giant expedition. We have a very small selective crew that John uh, absolutely handpicks. And I think this year more than ever, uh, we're very cautious. And the other bit that I've really sort of tried to home in on is the sustainability. We only catch, hunt, kill with what we need. And we're in a situation recently in Guyana uh, a few months back, and we're in the middle of nowhere in the deepest, darkest jungle with the Riwa uh, tribe. And, you know, going out hunting with them, they only hunt for what they need over those two or three day period. And this is not about different food for the crew. Mm. If we're hunting a caiman and if we're hunting a tarantula and that's all we've got to eat that night, that's what we're eating. There's no sandwiches flown in, you know, to keep everybody happy because they want to see a spaghetti bolognese or a Caesar salad wrap. Um, there's none of that bullshit that flies with us. So um, John knows a lot more about the logistics, but from my point of view, everything we, you know, catch, kill and sacrifice is, is, is utilized brilliantly. But then, you know, we travel so light, I mean, really lightly. Um, and, uh, you know, when we're traipsing through some real difficult territories you know i've got camera sticks on my back i've got a rucksack i've got batteries in my pockets and so we move very 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 uh carefully and and so respectful to what's happening mm, i love that yeah i mean i think that a lot of this uh, we would all be inclined to do things that way but working for nat geo it's all the more important it's part of their mission so mm -hmm. we work with them very closely to only do things with minimal impact um i will go as far as to say is we actually in the tarantula scene two tarantulas were caught and uh one was eaten and the other one was released uh, mm. In the piranha fishing, we didn't use all the piranha on camera that they caught, so those were given to the locals, and they brought home and fed their families with them. Uh, as Gordon says, nothing goes to waste, and we just like to keep our small footprint. And yes, per your original question, we do rely on the local fixers who are all National Geographic approved to help us maintain that minimal footprint. Mm. And what are the biggest technological challenges you faced filming in these remote areas? I'm sure you have signal issues. You're trying to coordinate with people maybe back in the States or back in the UK. How are you managing that piece of it? I mean, monitors don't always work. Uh, when we're in cold weather sites, batteries go instantly. Um, look, weather is our biggest challenge. When things get wet and things get cold, it changes everything. But we, you know, uh, our our motto on set is, you know, what you call a place where you know uh, a show where you don't have to deal with weather. You call that charted. On uncharted, <laughs> we deal with whatever we have to, and we go with it. If a camera goes down, we pick up a, a GoPro. If a GoPro goes down, we pick up an iPhone. I mean, we just don't let anything stop us from getting the show that we need to get. Hmm. One of the reasons I love the show so much, Gordon, is that you have a lot of very what I would call humbling moments, and I would like to play a clip from an, the episode in which you went to Tasmania. And this particular scene has you fishing with a young woman and you're having a difficult time casting out. So let's listen to that. Oh, come on. All right. 
No? I would go a bit near the log there. A bit nearer to the log? Mm hmm It's got to be gentle because you don't want to scare the fish. Pause and strong at the last cast. Bit more pause at the back. Right. This is beginning to feel like karmic payback for all those sous chefs whose knife techniques I've criticised over the years. Pause. Yep. Pause. Release. Happy there? Yep, that's good. All we need now is a fish est. How does it feel in those moments where you really do have to relinquish control, set aside your ego and, and know that the camera is capturing you doing something that maybe is actually quite difficult for you? Yeah, um, good question. I, uh, you know, I think to the outside world, I come across like such a controlling freak um, because <laughs> you need to be somewhat driven to get where you are. But then... I've achieved my ultimate goal, and that was three Michelin stars. And the first thing I did when I won those stars was then, you know, handing the baton over and starting to teach. Going into the uncharted scenarios, I'm the opposite because I've got pupil stamped on my forehead. So I come out a much better person, and I, I sort of, I love being, I love being taught. I've never shone, um, whether it's from John, Neil, or whether it's anything to do with a uh, a sort of you know a situation like the fly fishing, I I I depended on Esther's expertise. She was spotting these fish. She's thirteen years of age, <laughs> and she is an incredible uh, young lady. And she was spotting these fish, you know, thirty five, forty meters away, and I had no chance of seeing those fish. So um, I can take that back seat. I just got embarrassed if I didn't come up with the goods. I landed the fly uh, wrongly, wrong direction, 10, 12 meters out. Uh, she gave me a little telling off. And then <laughs> third time, um, lucky, I landed the fly in front of the nose. But I couldn't have gone fishing on my own and caught an amazing fish like that without such a, 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 a watchful eye um, as Esther. But I think what I got into early on with her is the dynamics, you know, Here's a young girl, uh, she was born with spina bifida. And oh, she, I didn't know that. She's never, yeah, she's never allowed any of the uh, sort of you know, roadblocks to stop her passion mm. fishing with her dad. I explained to her that I've been the patron of the Scottish spina bifida since 2006 and built this incredible center up in wow. Scotland. So we hit it off immediately. <laughs> and then when I told her about the love of fly fishing and how I was naughty when I was her age because <laughs> my parents didn't have the money to pay for licenses. So we went poaching. So we were casting from the trees and casting from the bushes and hoping to land these giant salmon. And I remember catching one huge salmon at 13 and then running away you know, from the uh, farmer uh, through this forest. And so her and I were having all these chats. And so um, I think taking that expertise advice from someone like that as a 13-year-old uh, was not just important for, 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 for me, but it was making her feel that this was her moment because without her eyes, you know, I was nobody. And it proved exactly that. I needed her talented eyes. Do you have any idea how hard it is to spot a brown trout? You no. know, in brown water, <laughs> you know, 35 meters away. And they come up and they just rise to the surface and they, they go for this little fly. It's called a, um, uh, it's like a mayfly. Uh, and she saw the mouth, the tiny mouth of the trout, 35 meters away, and the ripples. And I thought it was the wind. I just listened to her, got it wrong twice, third time lucky. Thank God. 
Wow. That is so inspiring. One fun fact from that scene, it was also Esther's birthday that day. And what better present could anyone get for their birthday than Gordon Ramsay and better yet, getting to boss Gordon Ramsay around? <laughs> I, uh, we bought her a little present. John gave me the heads up. It was her birthday. So we got a, a, an amazing little uh, Leatherman knife yeah. in its holder. And you should have seen her belt after. It was so, so proudly positioned and her own pen knife on her belt. And she was so excited. But uh, yeah, so I, uh, I can take direction from anybody. It's just Uncharted puts me into uh, a completely different mode because, um, yes, it's back to school. But look at the places we're going to. I mean, I, I, I know I, I, I panicked when we had to drop 10 meters in that bloody plane to get on the uh, reservoir and the lake to land it smoothly. But again, they didn't tell me those buggers, they're cutting the engines, we're going to glide in. So um, I couldn't wait to get out of that plane. That plane, imagine, imagine four of you in a bathtub, uh, all hunched up together with bags and bloody flasks and all sorts of crap on your knees. And that's what it was like landing on that lake inside a bathtub at 30, 40 miles an hour going over a bumpy. So I was glad to get out of that plane and get fishing. <laughs> I would say the, the fishing was a vacation after the plane ride. Yes. Stacey, <laughs> one other thing that I think is worth noting is one great thing we get to do on this show that you don't see on Gordon's other shows is you get to see Gordon Ramsay, the student, Gordon Ramsay, the father. I mean, it's whenever we interact with families, I mean, this is a father of five and you see him go into that paternal mode like he did yeah. with Esther. And it was, it's just really a, a joy to see that side of him. It's very sweet. And I almost want Esther now to be uh, in her own Nat Geo series. I think she could be an incredible, <laughs> an incredible ambassador for young people around the world. So take Absolutely. note, whoever's listening. And in closing, because Uncharted is about food, I would love to know what is the most wonderful and or strange thing you have eaten in your journeys together in the last couple of years. And you mentioned tarantula, which I'm now going to have nightmares about for the foreseeable future. <laughs> is there anything yes. else that stands out? Oh, man, I have a list uh, beyond. Um, but I was down on the South Island of New Zealand and I came across this incredible freshwater eel this giant eel this thing was five foot long um and you know the locals smoked it for me now i've had all sorts of eels um in kyoto uh in paris uh in holland um but i've never ever tasted an eel as delicious as this it was just extraordinary it was just you know firm sweetly smoked over this amazing uh apple wood and the texture was incredible. And it was a wild eel that wow. was, yeah, just, just, just incredible. So I'd say, you know, um, uh, an amazing eel for me. John? <laughs> uh, the most delicious, hands down, the, the scallops you hand dove for in a dry suit in Norway. Um, um, and, and the most polarizing, of course, is I'm going to go back to Durian. Neil DeGroote, our fabulous director, hates it. Tara Williams, our fabulous supervising producer, loves it. I love it. Gordon hates it. It's the, it's the great divide. Gordon hates it, but he respects it. I think that's important Absolutely. to note. It's the king yes. of fruit, but it, is, it does smell like old gym socks and is <laughs> yeah. not allowed on public transportation. And what does it mm. actually taste like? It seems so scary to even <laughs> venture into that experience, but what does it actually a, taste like? A rotten mango. 
<laughs> a really lovely ripe French cheese. <laughs> no, no, not for me. Wow. Well, it's no. hitting a lot of notes at once, right? <laughs> Well, I want to thank both of you for for joining us and also giving us such a wonderful insight into, gosh, there's just so much to explore in the world. And I know a lot of us are anxious to get back on planes and and have adventures beyond our living living arrangements, which are lovely, but can be a little confining. So appreciate both of your work and your time. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Stacey. John, take care. I'd look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. To find out more about Gordon Ramsay Uncharted and National Geographic's other Emmy contenders, go to natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi, and in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.